and welcome to episode 17 of the Live Motocross podcast. I'm Sophie McGinn and joining me this week is my co-host. He's got that title this week. We've given it to him. Uh, Roger Warren. Yeah, you've given me the title, but we haven't negotiated a fee yet. So <laughs> we'll have to think about that one. Um, this yeah. is very true. But uh, no, thank you. I'm uh, glad to be back. Looking forward to this one. This is going to be a good week. I know. I think it's probably one of our most interesting guests, I think, this week on the podcast. Um, We've got Mr. Steve Dixon. Now, I'm sure plenty of you at home have got a few questions lined up for him. So, Steve, say hello to everyone on the podcast. Yeah, hi to everyone in the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) From Sunny Swanmore. How's it been going down there? Okay. Yeah, good. Yeah, it's all been good. Yeah, we're all, all in good spirits. Oh, good. Perfect. So obviously one of the main reasons we wanted to drag you on the podcast this week, Steve, is one, I want to hear all about your background because I think a lot of people don't really know how much you have been involved in the sport over the years. Um, And also we've got a lot of things to quiz you about with the 2020 and the nations and bits and bobs, but um, where did it sort of start for you? Oh, well, it started in 1990 when I um, became a mechanic at Grand Prix level. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, before that, I used to ride sort of amateur, amateurly uh, in the local club, Winchester Club, and yeah. also the Eastleigh AMCA Club. So, um, yeah, I was always so I started on. Uh, I never did schoolboys. Uh, I basically had a, a field bike. First off, I had a car at. 12 years old my dad bought me mm-hmm. and um you know I stripped that down I had a passion for stripping anything down whether it's a tv a radio uh engines and yeah, yeah. That, that's how I got into it and I became a, a welder and engineer at British Rail mm-hmm. uh, purely before purely because um I wanted to build a frame yeah and uh that's that's how I started I I did a lot of my own stuff and then I repaired lots of people's bikes, tuning mm-hmm. and everything like that in the local mm-hmm. club. And, um, yeah, then one person said to me, would I be interested to work for Mervyn Anstey? And mm-hmm. uh, he, he was in the Mervyn Anstey sort of club. So I said, well, I'll give it a go. I went for an interview with an old tuner guy called Rob Spence. And, mm-hmm. yeah, he's... He said, uh, yeah, like, you know, good for the job. And then I, I, I'd i also sort of had good contacts with Yamaha. As as I was an amateur, I'd sort of developed a, a subframe for the Yamaha so it's detachable. And I yeah. sent it to Yamaha and they sent it to Japan. And uh, I think it came out really like five years later on the bike. So uh, I, I knew Roger Harvey just from, you know, going on a Yamaha training school. You know, I was just um you know passionate about sort of all the technical side and Mm -hmm. yeah and then uh roger ended up asking me questions about preparing for beach race and i got to know the yamaha mechanic steve goodyear and Mm -hmm. um yeah then uh uh, steve goodyear was a mechanic for rob herring the the sort of year before and uh you know this scene was new to me i'd never done sort of gp mechanic or anything so i i was still working the railway and i I told Steve Goodyear that um, I'd been offered this GP job and he said to me, well, I didn't know you wanted to do that. I said, well, I've never thought about it. I mean, <laughs> he said, well, you know, there's there's a job going at Yamaha in, uh, you know, next year with 
with um, you know the rider. So I said, well, maybe I'll go for that. So yeah. I went and met Roger Harvey, and I already, like I say, knew Roger and knew Steve Goodyear just from going to the trade shows and badgering them and mm-hmm. sort of giving them my ideas of what I was doing. And and um, yeah, so then yeah, Roger sort of. Yeah, he gave me the job. He trusted me, gave me the job, and I'd never driven abroad, never driven a big truck yeah. or anything like that. So I was in at the deep deep end. And yeah, so I, I got this truck from Roger, and my rider was Jeremy Watley, who was, mm-hmm. who was finished fourth in the world the year before, mm-hmm. and uh, who's Christian Watley's dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so basically off I went with this tr- truck, and uh, I said to Roger, I said, uh, like, where's the shower? And he's like, oh, well, yeah, you use the motorway toilets. And I said, what about, yeah, what about the toilet as well in the, in the truck? He said, no. And what about the bed? He said, you put a lilo in the back. <laughs> so there was absolutely nothing, just spare parts. And that, that's how I learned. And yeah, I said to Roger, I always rib Roger now and he'll, mm. he'll tell you about this. It, you know, cause like now he's, he's in charge of like the sort of one of the, you know, most illustrious sort of teams, HRC with their double deck hospitality. And I say, Roger, yeah. I said, like, you know, you've come a long way. You wouldn't even let me have a, a cooker or anything. He said, well, yeah. you know, I taught you the hard way and look at you now, you know, you've, you've lasted this long because I taught mm-hmm. you, uh, I was hard on you. Yeah, he was, yeah, Roger was a really good guy. And um, yeah, and that's how I sort of got into that. And mm-hmm. quickly then, you know, had sort of good success. They, they trusted me a lot and I, um, you know, had good success. And then I worked with some riders, mm-hmm. you know, we won British championships, races, et cetera, et cetera. Then in 2000 and no, 1994, mm-hmm. uh, there was cutbacks and they asked Roger to do two jobs, basically be in charge of, uh, marketing and as well as the race team. And Roger, uh, decided to step down and take take a job with Suzuki. Um, mm-hmm. So there was no manager's job. So I, I had to become, as he got made sort of redundant from that role, there couldn't be a, a manager as such. So I became yeah. team coordinator and this is 94. And yeah, so part of my, so I, it was just me and Paul Mailing. Mm-hmm. He, he was my rider for basically eight years. And so I, so in 94, you know, we did well. We we won the Nations with Paul. You know, that was mm-hmm. sort of, that was a big feather in my cap because he he hadn't done well. And so I uh, I wanted to get into the Nations with him. And so I suggested we uh, run a 125. And yeah, and that's what we did. So I built a bike. And we went up against all the 125 riders in Britain mm-hmm. because Paul, Paul actually rode a 250 that year. And and so everyone questioned why we should be considered. So we went and did some races. We won those. And so Paul got onto the team and yeah, he went one, one and we won the nation. So that was, uh, yeah, if I hadn't put that effort in to suggest that, then yeah, who knows history. So wow, that's, that's my little story. Um, <laughs> yeah, so then, yeah. Then, then it sort of carried on, you know, into another area. We had good success with, Paul and Carl Nunn yeah. and all those things under Yamaha UK. Mm-hmm. Then Yamaha UK in 2001 said to me, uh, look, we, you know, we need to cut back on the GP team um, as a country. 
would you, you know, would you be road race coordinator and motocross coordinator, you know, for Britain? So mm-hmm. I said, oh, that's a lot. Not, not, not. <laughs> well, no, that, that didn't phase me. I said, you know, like I've just built up all the workshop and everything like that, you know, to sort of compete at the top, you know, we were winning GPs and it was just the budget was sort of, you know, cut, mm-hmm. you know, back then there was a lot more budgets in each country, whereas now it's more sort of from Europe or Japan that each manufacturer sort of distributes their budget. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so that, so they gave me the choice to either pay me a, a, a retainer type salary for running the team. And then I had to go out and get my own sponsors or I could sort of be on the payroll to be a British motocross manager running the teams, uh, you know, advising the teams and also mm-hmm. road racing. So I opted to stay in the GPs and that's when I went out and got uh, sponsors like uh, Bike It and stuff like that. So yeah. that was like the next phase of how my team sort of has evolved. Mm-hmm. And, and then, yeah, then the next sort of, so through that chapter we had wins with, um, Billy McKenzie, Andrew McFarland, Brian Jorgensen, mm-hmm. and you know we won British Championships again, and so then that led further down the line where we, you know, we were getting sort of support from factory from Rinaldi. We were sort of a factory two hundred and fifty team with Billy, with McFarland, and those type of guys. Then that that led led to the next stage where we had in 2000 sort of nine uh when we had i don't know if it was eight or nine it all rolls into one now but (laughs) the next sort of how i say stage was when uh we had martin Barr and a couple of other riders and they they were all injured so Mm -hmm. and martin wasn't sort of performing very well so we got this we got zach osborne over he he was he was sort of injured at the time and he was sort of bit cast out over there in uh, America with star racing and um, Ashley Kane happened to be over there and spoke to him in a coffee shop and said look why don't you pop over to England and have a little sort of few weeks there and see what you think so that was Fox Hill Steve wasn't it I remember his first race yes yeah Yeah, I remember you said uh, you said to me come and meet our new rider and you we went in there and there was this uh, little little chubby American guy who no one had ever heard of. And yeah. he said, this is Zach Osborne. And if I remember correctly, he got on the podium that day. Yeah, he did. Yeah. 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 So he, you know, um, Zach came over and, uh, yeah, he ended up staying four and a half years until he aged out of MX2. And, you know, we regularly keep in contact and yeah, he's, he's forever grateful for the time he spent here and the experience. And we took him to GP wins as well. So then uh, that was another part of era. We, you know, we went over to do, you know, what we had a really good relationship. He lived with, he lived with me. And then uh, he also then lived with Mel Pocock, um, you know, and everyone sort of gone really well. And he said to me in 2012, look, um, you know, next year I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to um, America because I, I'm not, you know, I'm not ready to go MXGP yet. I mm-hmm. said, he said, but, you know, will he help me? I said, yeah, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, I need to do some supercrosses. I said, okay. I said, so what What do you mean then? He said, well, 
can we do some of the um, outdoor, I mean, the uh, AMA? I said, well, okay, yeah, they're, they're sort of January, February. I said, okay, let's let's do a deal then. Let's do four races and say, let's come back. So that was the plan. So we did some European races and he won some of them and both, you know, we had a great year that year, both him and uh, Tonus did well in, in the sort of outdoor races and in the supercrosses. Mm-hmm. So with the training we did in Europe, we did, I think, three or four races. We then went to America to Anaheim one. We set up the bike over here and we went there, took the bike basically in the plane and <laughs> and then we we yeah we basically we did four four races and when we came away uh zach was second in the series joint second in the series so we did a great success there and um yeah and we just pitted out of a little little van and also we just did it we did the four supercrosses from uh a guy called who works over there now, Chris Hay. We did it from his double garage, and we went practicing each each morning um, at Michael Essie's track. Mm-hmm. Zach did his own pro. You know, he he managed his own program. Said, right, I want to be here at this time. I want to do this, 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 and this. And we we did exactly his schedule. You know, he he ran the show, and we did a success. I came away sort of joint second, and he got four offers of um of rides and yeah as they say the rest is history zach's gone on to win sort of uh supercrosses titles and yeah uh 450 class supercross so that was a fantastic stage you know to see and be able to follow him as well you know it's that sort of gave us a sort of foot in with american riders you know because they they know that we have success um, and then that led on to the next stage of finding riders, uh, which was, yeah, basically Max Anstey. Uh, no, D- Dean Ferris, another sort of, another rider sort of from Australia that was looking mm-hmm. to sort of make it. And yeah, with Dean, uh, we, we took him to GP wins and also he then went on to America to ride for KTM USA after he aged out. Mm-hmm. Then it led to Zach, who had a bit of a, not Zach, uh, to Max, who, yeah, everyone said was a bit of a misfit amongst his factory teams with Honda and Suzuki and, mm-hmm. um, you know, even in America. And, yeah, we took we took Max and we had, uh, you know, Max comes from Winchester as well. You know, we basically brought him back home. We did, again, we did a, a program that suited him, you know, riding locally and, you know, mm-hmm. just, feeling at home and yeah in his his first year with um with us he had sort of gp you know he won lomo it was a very difficult he had podiums at the beginning of the season and then a double win he won his first grand prix with us at lomo mm-hmm. which then led to the change um yeah so i was basically 25 years with with Yamaha and people say, you know, why did you change? And I sort of often spoke a little bit with Steve Guttridge from Kawasaki and, you know, as I did with Roger Harvey from Honda and, you know, just sounded out the different sort of options there. I would never leave uh, Yamaha because I'm a very loyal person. And the person who was always in charge at Yamaha was um, uh, 
Andrew Smith, who was there for many years, and also um, Lawrence, who was in charge of Europe. So everything was, um, they knew me, they knew what was going on. And in 2014, uh, the bike was reverse cylinder, it was new, and Cosworth said to us, you know, that it's going to take quite a few months to develop to be where our 2013 bike was. Mm -hmm. So we started off on our 2013 and we had, basically we had three podiums in the first three races. And um, yeah, then then the Yamaha sort of said, uh, and also like the factory team had broke down using their 14 bike. So then, then people... Yeah, then Yamaha said to us, look, we got to go on to the 14. And we were basically testing the 14 at the races. And it was it was horrendous. I mean, we we literally nearly killed ourselves that season. We, you know, falling asleep at the wheel. The, oh, my God. The, the electronics guy, you know, we would come back from uh, Finland. And, yeah, he basically fell asleep. And we hit this lamppost and nearly uh, ended all, our, all of us. Because, yeah, we were just so, so tired that season trying to, you know, keep things going on that bike yeah. but eventually it paid off and uh you know Yamaha come to me with this deal and it was a lot less deal and and I'm like well you know that's not fair because you've you know you've seen how, how hard we worked and mm. uh, so so we yeah then and then that, that was at Lommel and then on the Friday and then on the Saturday and Sunday Max won every uh every sort of part of the race and one had a double win and they came back to me with a lot lot better offer and I said to them no I said like you know I said with my old with the old boss Andrew Smith who had retired I said you know he, he knew my history he knew he knew and trusted me and you know I said what you done was you know it's not fair and mm. I said and and that's why I sort of left and went to Kawasaki and Kawasaki have been yeah they've been brilliant as well and it in our first year with Kawasaki, we, you know, we won ten GP races with Max, and he finished third in the world. So that was another good era, and then uh, we lead on to our next few riders, yep. Darian, and that's led us. You know, he, Darian did well, but has had lots of ill health and injuries, and so for the last, you know, sort of two or three years, you know, things have been. Uh, you know, difficult. We had a podium with Brillikoff and we've led races with Darian, but mm -hmm. no, nothing solid, you know, for our standards. But motocross goes like that. So this year, leading up to this year, 2020, is my 31st season in, uh, you know, GPs. So I don't think there's an older team in UK and near enough in all the GPs. Um, yeah, so... All right, let's, let's, let's pick up on a few of those things, then, Steve, that you've been talking about. Um, yeah. First off, you're a privateer team up against the factories, and, and everyone knows in MX2, power and, and if you throw, you've got to throw money at a 250 to make it competitive. You're a privateer up against the mega factories, but you have proven time and time again that you can build a bike that is a match for the factory 250s and probably in a lot of cases faster. So I know you're a very, very hands-on um, team owner. Um, I've heard that you're often to be found in your workshop in the early hours of the morning um, on the milling machine or on the dyno or whatever. Um, does that still excite you, actually working on the bikes and making them? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, uh, I think, I think it's a dying breed of, um, you know, of workers that are, you know, are able to do that. Um, you know, because more and more mechanics are becoming sort of parts fitters, which is which which is fine. That's the way it's gone. But you know, I, I'm lucky in that I've given my uh, my mechanics, you know, a, a good lead into being able to explore in every avenue of the bike you know whether it's suspension engine dyno work uh, machining and you know i'm lucky to have good overall um mechanics and the two that have gone gone to leave me so if we look at three of my mechanics they all started at 15 years old as work experience not not even been able to change a spark plug and uh Mikey Whitewick, he's he he went on. He left after thirteen years with me uh, because he met met a girlfriend and went up to uh, Scotland and you know and then went to work for a you know big dealership. See, women, they're bad news, Steve, aren't they? Bad hey, news. Be yeah. careful, you two. Be careful. <laughs> then, then, um, yeah. Then Ben. Then Ben was. Uh, you know, he also started at 15, again, work experience. It's Ben um, Popperwell, yeah? Ben Popperwell. Yeah. He, he was with me um, just over 12 years, and he then went to MotoGP for, uh, you know, Olin's. You know, that's through the experience that he learned, you know, here and, and the closeness we have with, you know, we had with Olin's and, you know, the suspension people and, and us doing the suspension here. And then last week he had his first MotoGP win with, um, however it is, Quarantaris from, uh, from France. Number 20. Fabio Quattararo. Quattararo. Yeah, you were, you were close. Yeah. You got, you got the French bit right, Steve, well done. So, you know, that, so that gave us good, you know, gave me good pleasure to see that happen because, you know, I know, um, you know, Ben's, you know, homegrown from our our sort of workshop, and just on Fabio, I met Fabio. Our team met Fabio when we were Wild Wolf, and Eduardo, who was the owner of Wild Wolf, took Fabio at twelve years old and said, "This guy, he's going to be world champion." And she so had this little twelve-year-old Fabio. You know, with all of us down in Spain, where we were testing and doing a film for uh, Wild Wolf, and Eduardo took him under his wing and put him through all the uh, the sort of Spanish Federation schooling into the one twenty fives, Moto two, and unfortunately, I don't. I think in the end, actually, they may have fallen out, or you know, between sponsors and etc but he put a huge amount of effort and you know led him to where he is today and you know I always remember him saying you know when he was just 12 that he's going to be a world champion you know he's a special rider and he will make it to the very top and yeah and he has done and my other mechanic Jordan here he's he's been with me he is now 27 and he started with me at 15 at uh, um, yeah, from work experience. Now, all three of those riders came from Portsmouth Schoolboy Scramble Club. So I think, 
Yeah, and they've all gone on to have a, you know, like Jordan's got two children, he's got a house and everything. And what they've been able to do here is grow as a normal person, you know, in their own life as well as motocross life. Because, you know, motocross is very, at GP level, it's very demanding. You know, it's easy to get burnt out. You know, most people move to Belgium and there's a, quite a, quite a rotation of mechanics etc and we have to say that probably the mechanic is the most important part of a team you know he, he is the lifeline of a team you can do without a team manager you can't do without a rider but a rider needs a mechanic you know to to operate and you know i think that's probably why they stay so long because i value so much of what they do um you know and they know what to do and yeah, I think they're a, getting the right mechanic is a huge, huge asset to a team. You know, they 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 keep the harmony of the team, and you know they 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 make it tick. You know, and those three guys as well as well as Nick that's been here sort of twelve or thirteen, well maybe actually fourteen years. Um, the, yeah, that's you know, uh, Nick, who's Courtney's mechanic. Yeah, yeah. So Nick Nick was Zach's mechanic, and. Um, you know, Nick. Nick knew us from uh, he was he worked at TGI's and he just kept on at us say, "Oh, let me let me come and have a go. Let me come and work for the team." So he came and he did hospitality. And then I didn't know that he was also a welder and was into bikes like beforehand. So mm-hmm. then we trained him up, and he did. Uh, you know, he was mechanic for Zach when he won the British Championship and did the GPs. Then, you know, then along came marriage. And, you know, he's had his child, Mackie, and they've been able to do that. And now he does all our machining and, um, you know, still does work on the bikes back here. And then he does Courtney's six races, you know, because he has a home life. So as a balance, he does just the six races with Courtney. Mm. So I think that's our strength in that we have a good base team here, which is which enables us to go against what you know what you call the factory teams although you know we have good backing from from uh, Kawasaki and you know our deal is direct with Europe and we have a good feedback from Japan and via Steve Guttridge we have a good connection there and with our connection with Cosworth you know I think we have a, a solid a solid base. Yeah, we, we'll come on to that in a minute with Cosworth. But um, yeah. I, I was saying before you came online, um, I was talking and saying that I remember two instances. I mean, first of all, I know that Zach Osborne makes no secret of the fact that yours is the fastest 250s ever ridden, and he's ridden a few factory bikes. Yeah. Secondly, um, I was saying that uh, I remember the instance of the nations at Toyshin Tal 2012. Andrew McFarlane whole shot by a good 30 metres against the 450s. That was Dean Ferris, yeah. Oh, sorry, Ferris, yeah, sorry. Yeah, Uh, Yeah. Dino Holt. In fact, you know, people were saying that can't be right, but it clearly was because you passed all the tests and uh, Dino whole shot that by country mile. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, how Cosworth came about was was basically um, in, in... with with Zach, he kept blowing up, let's say, our factory bikes. And at that time, it was um, by, you know, Rinaldi, who have the factory deal. Um, 
and they supplied the engines and you know Zach kept sort of yeah they wouldn't they wouldn't stand up to the test of time with Zach and the way he revved and so basically Zach said to me at, towards the end like you know if we if we can't change I'm going back to America so I, I had to give up our factory support to follow Zach because he said like you know I, I need I need someone to build me a bike so that I can ride it as Zach Osborne you know not I have to ride it as they want me to ride it you know this is how I ride this is how I rev it and you know build me a bike around me and I'll win you races and that and that's what we did and you know so I, I immediately sort of started searching for um for uh you know British manufacturer in pistons and you know there was um a couple of them and I ended up going to Cosworth and it was just the right time that they were wanted to get into the motocross market with their piston sales so at that time you know they they sponsored us heavily with all the development and also free product and you know and it it's a it was a huge huge amount of um money you know that was really involved in in time and to, to be able to have a tap into um into that technology and see how they do things. And, you know, they don't need to know about motocross to, to build engines because, you know, all their technology is, is far higher than that. And so that, that connection was, you know, was, and still is a strong part of our team. And that's, you know, we've learned a lot, lot, lot from them. And that's, why, uh, why has nobody else gone down that road, Steve? Because Britain's well knows, known for Formula One technology in Formula One. Why has no other manufacturer looked in, down that route? It's an uh, obvious one, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And and I think it's just the sheer cost of it. And we were we were lucky to get that cost, you know, free of charge. And so we've we're already on that bandwagon of of how to approach things in you know, and it's taught us a lot. So we, you know, we, we're not afraid of where to sort of spend our money on parts now. And, you know, quite, quite a few people, you know, they say, oh, our bikes blow up, et cetera, et cetera. And actually it's one, it's not that very many times. And two, it's because, um, you know, we've been around a long time. So you're going to have that. And it happens in Formula One a lot. In, in all sorts of things. And one of the things that, you know, we don't like to break down, but obviously when you're up against a factory team, you know, and there is only one factory manufacturer now, and that is obviously KTM, which comes under the, you know, the umbrella of Husqvarna and also Gas Gas now. So, you know, you're dealing with, you know, a company that is, you know, has their bikes a year or two in advance, so have ironed out all problems beforehand. Whereas, you know, the difficulty presented to um, most all the other sort of teams is that you're working with a current year bike and you're developing as you go along. And with with the off season so short and things so difficult to get made in that off season because it's very busy when you're trying to use motorsport 
manufacturers, you know, like Cosworth and that, you know, because they're making for MotoGP teams, they're making for Formula One teams, they're making for um, Rally and also they're developing for road cars, etc., and also military. So those sort of places are far and few between. So you're in a big queue and most of those things sort of take three to six months to get developed and made. So that's one of the biggest struggles or disadvantages over probably, you know, let's say KTM and that. So we managed to, to do this and one of Max Anstey's sort of famous quotes is, I, I would rather push a bike back um, after leading than constantly finishing fourth or sixth. He said, at least I know I can be up the front with those guys. And, you know, we, we don't aim to break down. No one does, not in Formula One, not in MotoGP or anywhere. But when, it, when you're trying to push, you know, a, a, a production bike, you know, because we have to... Th- we have to remember that these bikes are the bikes that are in the showroom, you know, from, from Kawasaki or back then it was Yamaha. You know, they're not, you know, they don't come in a crate from Japan and say, you know, this is a factory bike. It's like, yep, that's the bike that you get in a showroom and you have to work within those um, parameters of a standard bike and, and build from there. So, it's an enjoyable challenge, very much so. And, you know, I enjoy every single day coming to work and that, you know. So so you're, you, you, you are on the very edge of the technology and the performance capabilities of those bikes, the 250s. The easy option would be to run a 450 where you don't have to do that. But you've chosen to put your efforts into the 250. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I'm not against, you know, I, I could – I could work well, you know, we've worked well with, um, 450s. It's just the 450 class is, um, you know, more about established riders, you know, so there's also some wealth that we can bring to, uh, you know, riders, you know, have our experience, but when you're working in MXGP, the riders are one very expensive, which can only be handled by, you know, the factories Two, they require a, huge amount of personnel again that can only be handled by the factories and so the factory teams now um are you know more based on partnership of a let's say a successful business you know whether it be like wilvo or garibaldi or kamea or you know let's say ice one you know, so successful businesses partnered with the technical knowledge of the factories. So it's gone away from where the factories used to pay for everything, pay for all the buildings. And, you know, and I feel probably that's why, you know, Gabor's has gone and why, um, you know, Rinaldi's gone, why Yander Groot sort of, it, it finished that style. So, you know that's that that's how I see the you know the modern MXGP class, which is you know which is a perfect fit, I guess, for the factories because you know they don't have the budget they used to have, um, but they need to be racing at the top level. So it's a perfect sort of partnership, and um, 
Yeah. So, so, so do you do you enjoy being a thorn in the side of the factory teams? <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't think of it like that. I don't. You know, I, I respect everyone in uh, you know who's doing the racing and and they're putting in just as much effort. You know, Kate. Let, we have to talk KTM because they're the one who are doing the most winning over here, and they have probably the best program. But that program, you know, has has you know cost a lot of money. But their their main business is selling motocross bikes. Now, if we look at the success of you know say Kawasaki and World Superbike with Jonathan Ray, you know that's a phenomenal program and. And they sell a lot of road bikes off of it. So, you know, motocross is a luxury, very, very small percent of, say, Kawasaki's market, and they still want to win. But for KTM, it's their, let's say, 60, 80% of their business. You know, Kawasaki are selling, you know, they, they built the, you know, the machine that went, that dug the tunnel, you know, the, the round propeller. And they do robots and they do heavy industries and it's railways. It's all the big, real big stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So so we're a small luxury advertising campaign almost. And um, yeah, that, that's just how it is. I mean, luckily they build a great, you know, production bike so we can, you know, we can build from that and it goes in cycles, you know, one, a few years it's Honda and a few years it's, Yamaha and obviously it used to be Suzuki back in the days of Everts and you know and KTM were never a force and you know they've come into it well and they've you know competition's good you know through them being competitive it it drives everyone else to be competitive but their their program is uh, like I say their main advantage is to me is that they have a bike a year or two beforehand so they are ironing out any issues constantly at the highest level and and that stuff that that's the stuff that we you know would generally struggle with is time that you're you're actually developing in real time meaning the season that you're in and and part of the success of the latter part of the Cosworth years was because the Yamaha had stayed the same so long so it was it had evolved and we didn't need to do those seasonal changes you know it, it was finely honed and that's why you saw anyone that jumped on it whether it be Michael Lieb um, Dean Ferris Andrew McFarlane all of those they were they were just able to jump on it Tonus Zach and just ha- have the success well let's let's move on now then you, you've led us nicely now um, pretty much every rider who's ridden for you has improved absolutely by the time think- they've left you they have improved results-wise as a rider. Many of them gone on to full factory rides. Um, so that is a compliment to you. But also, what I'd like to explore is you've also worked with some very riders who are very complex personalities. Not Billy McKenzie. Uh, <laughs> that could be one. And, and Max as well. Max Anstey is... Absolutely, yeah. Uh, now, they have, it hasn't worked with other teams, but we... No. It has. What are you doing differently working with guys like that that other teams haven't? They, they know I share the same passion to win and I have unbelievable um, 
patience. Well, it's not patience because it, it just comes to me naturally. It's it, so I don't treat it as anything differently. But I, I do, you know, I try to look at every question or or, or scenario from from every side, and that's that I believe is my sort of strength, you know. And I give everyone the benefit of the doubt. I trust everyone how I've been trusted, and sometimes it bites you in the bum, you know. And but invariably, if you and the same with the mechanics. If you try to, if you let people be themselves, and, and and they want to grow, they will grow, and you'll get the best out of them. And but it requires trust, you know, trust and time, and and understanding. You know, it could be, for example, Max. We didn't practice in sand at all, and we went to Lomo and he, he won both races. Now, you just have to also believe in the rider and believe that he's not telling you lies. You, you, you know, with the experience I have, you un, you understand their different ways. I mean, it was no different than Courtney. Courtney had been with Josh Coppins uh, for three years. Josh is a fantastic um, rider. He's a should have won a world title, and. Courtney came and won her first Grand Prix, but for three years, she didn't win the title. She came to us and she won the title. It's not a fluke. There was, you know, there was method behind what we did with Courtney and, and it worked. And uh, yeah, I mean, I I think what is a big, (laughs) biggest compliment to you as well is I know that all, all of your riders even when they leave you and go somewhere else, they stay in touch. I, I know you're in touch. You speak to Zach. I know you speak to Max, um, Tonus, everyone like that. You, so you stay almost friends with them. They stay in touch with you and keep in contact. So they're obviously think, you know, um, owe you a debt of gratitude, I would think. Yeah, I mean, uh, the relationship I build with them, like Paul Malin was my best man at my wedding. You know, that's uh, – and he was my rider. So Yeah, whatever happened to him? I don't know. He's he's a comedian somewhere. I think actually, I think it's on some TV show that's on <laughs> same same time as um, MXGP as well. Yeah, we must look it up sometime. See what happened to him. Yeah. So I mean, Paul was always destined to that when he used to do the um, karaoke, and you know, actually, he at my wedding, he uh, he went and he, he went next door and sang at next door's wedding and then came back and sang at our wedding and yeah he's a he loves a microphone and just don't ever ask Paul any directions because he will go into the you know that 10th 10th blade of grass on the right hand side you'll see there'll be a bit that's been burnt by the sun well if you go 10 yards after there there'll be another two daisies well follow those two daisies for six buttercups and then suddenly you'll come to a roundabout there'll be two red roses there well take take those two carry on round follow the three and you're like well what was that Paul uh, I've lost and, and everyone takes the mick out of that but he has phot- photographic memory for uh, for everything and um he does the best Jamie Dobb impression as well. Exactly. I was going to come to that. So every time, every time at Western Beach Race, um, so so Western, it was always the end of season, you know, 
piss up basically for all the riders teams and and we get we get uh jamie uh jamie will be down there and paul will be there and again he'd get on the mic and he'd be he'd be like yeah Bella, what you doing he'd be like taking all this mickey of uh and he could pull it off brilliantly and um yeah i mean that you know those those days were you know fantastic times and yeah everyone would be uh drunk and well actually i didn't drink so i was okay but but yeah, but yeah your, your riders do they do stay in touch with you and they do stay loyal to you don't they definitely yeah yeah i mean um you know that you know it's you're as close as a marriage closer than a marriage you you know a rider is a complex person that you need to really work out you know for instance like paul would say to me don't even talk about the race. If I've had a bad race, don't talk to me about it until the next day or two, you know, just because you're not going to get the right reaction. And, you know, all of those little quirks or, you know, Billy, you know, Billy was, you know, it was like a little wired up sort of spring and you had to, you know, know exactly how you were sort of handling them, not to sort of be modelly Colin, but, you had to really, really sort of understand them, and that you know they are complex characters because, uh, as I say, they they've they've been a schoolboy, and they suddenly come out of schoolboys, and invariably they've missed school because they've gone to weekend races, etc. And then suddenly, the next day they're a professional, but no one's taught them to be a professional. They they are just expected to be a professional. You know, they haven't done an apprenticeship. They haven't gone on to college to learn how to be like an accountant or anything like that. They they are in the same boat as Stefan Everts, who's won 10 titles and is racing the same race. So you can't expect them, you know, it must be, you know, such a daunting task you know, for them, for them to sort of do that, you know, suddenly at 16, 17, they've got to know how to travel. They've got to know how to order food abroad. They've got to know how to adapt to different time scales, different travel zones, different people, all of these things. And ultimately they ride a Grand Prix bike for 50 hours of the year. So all of this work, goes for 50 hours that's you're on 20 times two and a half hours that's that's what you're doing grand prix for so everything is to to channel into 50 hours of work that's what counts those 50 hours and when you break it down like that you know they have a lot of time they have a lot of you know they- well, yeah because uh, outside in the real world you make allowances for a 16 16 year old kid you don't in motocross do you no, absolutely not. You know, you're an apprentice. Oh, yeah, like go and tell him to go and get the glass hammer and, you know, the the tartan paint and, you know, oh, go and get me that long weight. Well, it's not, you know, you don't have that sort of banter in, in, in motocross that you have. And I think that's one of my strong points is I did sort of nine years at British Rail where you've got 2,500 people that are, you know, that are sort of, you know, like a little town almost that you're working with every single day and you're you know it's totally different and you have to 
you know, you are clocking in, clocking out. So coming into this world, you appreciate that you're your own person every single day. And, but, but you're not, but you have to make your decisions in life and you sort of have to, you know, live by the sword and die by the sword. Whereas in a industry, you're told what to do. So you'll say, right, okay, you have to wear overalls. You have to clock in at quarter past seven. Right. I want you to do 500 of those this morning. I want you to do a hundred of them. Okay. And then you go home. You don't think about work. You you go and do whatever you want to do and, you know, do, do stuff for the weekend. You know, you look forward to the weekend here. It's you, everyone that is successful has to eat, sleep and breathe motocross. And, and it's the same, I guess, for any sport and, you know, wherever you're looking, you're, you're thinking how to improve or, and, and, and if they make a mistake, the, um, you don't make allowances. Everybody's going to be on them, aren't they? Straight. I mean, I, I always think back to a couple of years ago when Jeffrey Hurlings got in trouble for swearing. <laughs> um, he was a 17-year-old kid. He just had a very traumatic race. He came across the line and they put a microphone under his nose. It was yeah, always going to happen. Always going to happen. That was, yeah, I, we were involved in those volatile times with, with yeah. uh, with uh, Jeffrey, um, you know, with Billy and um, that's what I mean. Outside, if a kid did that outside, you'd make allowances for that. But yeah. this is, this, they don't get that uh, that luxury, do they? No, absolutely not. And you know, and uh, you know, I get on well with Jeffrey now. And yeah, you need those sort of characters as well. It, you need the bad boys, and you know, everything can't be sort of by the book you know you need just sort of Wayne Rooney's and Georgie Best's and the likes of that and your Graham Noises of motocross you know so it's but that is exactly what you know I was saying you know they that you've almost got to be a, a babysitter you've got to be a mum and a dad and you've got to be everything to them you know and it's difficult because a rider generally has a very very low attention span you know they you know they they do their races they generally get irritable if they're not eating and you know it's they're about themselves you know because typical teenager basically pardon typical teenager well yeah probably a little bit worse because you have to understand that anyone that is successful has got to that level of motocross has something special within them and to be successful you have to be selfish and you have to be sort of self-centered they may not think that and they may not appear that but any successful person has to tread on toes to get to get to the top and so you constantly have to deal with working out how to um work with these egos and work with these um type of you know, people, because we have to say that MX2 riders are young and that's part of the complexity of, of working with an MX2 rider is that, you know, you're not dealing with an established rider that's, you know, let's just say Clement de Salle knows his program, knows what his family time is, knows what his training time is, um, you know, and you've got someone that's young, that wants to ride all the time, wants to be doing this, wants to be doing that. And yeah, and that is not as, not as bad as having a baby and, you know, and you've got to constantly keep them entertained, but you know, when they're away, you know, they, they, 
they need attention and it's sometimes it's difficult for the mechanic you know because the mechanic's got to work and then the rider's like oh yeah let's let's go down to the beach or whatever or you know let's go and do something you know and then they hang around and then they annoy you and yeah they're, they're fine but you know what i mean they're irritable you know they they need to be doing something because they they are not i don't mean special special but they like i say there there's something special in in elite people whatever they are to have achieved that um standard you know they've gradually got to the sort of let's say the cream and and they are all complex characters and 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 another thing that you have to deal with is on those youngsters is invariably they they haven't had girlfriends they've had quite a strict um let's say weekend upbringing they don't have they don't know where you're going with this one steve now but but generally um you know, they've led quite a strict, you know, life with, you know, with motocross, school, missing some school, doing nationals, etc. And, you know, and especially around 15, 16, when, when other kids, 17-year-olds, they're out on the town, they're partying, they're going down the pub, buying clothes, you know, meeting the girls, you know, and that's that's all that's important to those people, and then and then you've got a, a motocrosser that's got to almost live like a a saint. You know, I can't go out because I'm training. I can't do this because I'm training. I can't come to that party because I'm away racing. Yeah, I can't come to your 18th because I'm away racing. I can't come to your 16th. I'm away racing, and so they live live this almost none life and then yeah sooner or later you know at some stage between when they start at sort of 15 you know girls appear and then you have a whole different set of emotions that you have to deal with which is all part of life and you can't stop those in a rider and so you have to then deal with girlfriends losing girlfriends other people getting off with their girlfriends and, you know, all, all sorts of scenarios that you then got, you've got, a, that are not part of motocross, but they're part of life, but you need them to be fully focused at the weekend. So you do become, um, you know, a surrogate dad. Yeah. I, I mean, there's not many situations that we've not dealt with. I mean, the, the work, you know, one of the worst situations that we had to deal with was, um, you know, been away training all winter in America and with Carl Nunn and Carl, you know, he had some piercings done and everything. And he was going to get engaged when he came back to, um, to England to his girlfriend, Catherine. And the night they were getting engaged was the night they were coming back from America and, Catherine went to, you know, over to Carl and that was the end of it. Uh, a drunk driver hit her car. She she was dead. You know, we had to deal with the, you know, going to the funeral with with Carl's emotion. You know, he, he you know, we told him to take the year off. We, we stand by him. and But he used the strength of, of that and he turned it around and um, he, he had a third in the world at, Fox Hills and you know he might have dyed his hair 
three times a week. And, you know, he had the, you know, Catherine on his helmet and kissed his cam, uh, you know, his helmet and, you know, drew strength from that. And, you know, you don't have to deal with that sort of stuff when you're just clocking in, clocking out, being a welder. You know, it's it's all sorts of things, you know, and yeah, and that's uh, injuries and, you know, not performing. And yeah, it's it's a constant, every day is different. But yeah. Well, we're talking it's, about riders. Now, um, I'm guessing it's a budgetary thing, but you, you as a team haven't got the money to go out and buy the best riders. So you, in conjunction with guys like Ash Kane, have found riders who have been overlooked for whatever reason and you brought them on and brought them into teams and turned them into Grand Prix winners. Zach Osborne, you know, case in question. Um, you've got – how, how do you explain that? As I say, I know Ash has a big role in that side of it, but explain yeah, how I that mean, works. I mean, um, actually, the, the cheaper the rider, the more expensive it becomes because when you – we had a terrible year in 2013 when I think, no, t- 2003 when Billy got injured um, and we had Mark Jones, we had um, Jason Higgs and, you know, they weren't setting the world alight. Yeah, there's a character. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Well, Higgs and Jonesy together are like, yeah. you know. So, so th- you're dealing with those things. So, we were like a, almost an all-time low that in 2003 and so we went out and we got a new new wagon bike it came on massively and we went out and paid for Andrew McFarland and we bought him from Kawasaki factory and, and that that worked but from that we sort of almost built our own success where the rider wanted to come to our team because we were successful and because we sort of specialize in MX2 with the age rule, um, there's not the riders around, you know, there's not one rider that you would go out and it is worth a lot of money. You know, when I say a lot of money, I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands because by the time they've almost made it, they, they've got to go to MXGP. So it's, it's not like you can go and buy a Tonus anymore or a, or a Zach. I mean, Zach, Zach was a, a fine because again, you know, we, we were looking to bring a rider in because, because of injuries. I think we had Kenneth Gunderson was out and, um, you know, stuff like that, but it's, um, you know, same as with KTM and, uh, Tom Vial, you know, that the riders there are, are lurching ready to be taken on. And it's, um, you know, that's more of the nature now of MX2. If if it's MXGP, then yeah, it's, it's just a buying game. And there's more riders than there are rides in MXGP. So, so then, um, you know, the top riders can command good money as well, you know, and it's, um, but what is good is that pretty much every rider in MXGP and MX2 are getting paid, you know, and they have campers, they have, you know, because a lot of people say, oh, it's not as good as it used to be. Well, Paul Malin was second in the world with, you know, with me in 96. We were factory and I was working out my garage in, you know, 
in Eastleigh and uh, parking the truck out on the road. Well, now, you know, through how things have changed and it's evolved, you know, we've got our own workshop, we've got the big truck, you know, each of the mechanics have, you know, good, you know, treated well and have a, a proper life. Whereas before mechanics were treated like, oh yeah, there's five grand, you know, you should be grateful to work for us. And, you know, you you have to work 80 hours a week and you should be privileged that you're coming away with us. And it was false really. You know, there was lots of people trying to qualify. Yes. But, and there was, start money yes but that but you could go three grand prix and not qualify and so you've been away three weeks and someone has to have paid that mechanic someone has to have paid the fuel and invariably it was all the dads so it wasn't really realistic money it wasn't like there was a lot more rides around and people were paying so uh, it's um is different times and we've grown with that and the work conditions conditions are better and I feel if you want to make a career at motocross and you are good then there is far more of a career there now than there ever was before that it was there was such a vast difference between a factory bike you know say of what Stefan Everts was riding as a 125 then you know John Barfer or whoever could go and go and compete with and and so you never got a look in so you would have eight or ten riders from the uk trying to compete but they never could stand a chance against the full factory machines you know back in the day so i think so i think you know we we don't see those high bidding wars in mx2 anymore because there's because of that age rule, that's probably one thing that's stopped the massively high wages in MX2. So it is more of a take a chance and see. And the teams have to invest in those younger riders. And So do you see that the age rule is a positive? Um, I do. I do think the structure is good because you have MX2. You have you have one twenty fives, you have two fifties Europeans, then you have the stepping stone to MX two. MX two is you know is a great class, and then you have MXGP. I think I think that that balance is is good. Um, if if the um, if the age rule changed, I think it would it would increase you know, costs because I think wages would be a lot more. And I don't think that money is in the sport at the moment, you know, for 80 riders, you know, for MXGP at the top, top and, and in MX2, you know, if, if it was expensive wages all throughout, then you would see a lot of the smaller teams, you know, disappear and it would just be down to the sort of, you know, 20 15 20 riders that are that have a sort of a like a semi factory deal like on our team um and and I don't think like KTM are looking to pay huge uh wages but having said that you know amongst every team there is great bonuses you know so they would earn you know if they did well there's you know they're not they're still going to be able to buy a house out of one or one and a half years wages so you know, I think I think that's a you know a positive step 
you know, that everything is structured, you know, a lot, a lot better. And uh, we just need more British riders to, to be able to, you know, feature up in the top, top sort of champion, you know, top league really. Um, you know, there used to be huge amounts of riders coming from the UK, but I think that's just, I don't think that's a UK thing. I just think it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of classes in the UK and it, with with the increase in GPs, you know, 20 GPs, it, it doesn't leave the national championships as strong to bring people on. But, have it, you know, but there is a path through the European. And, you know, I think if you look at, say, Eddie J. Wade and that, you know, they're starting to come up through. And I just think at the moment we're sort of suffering from a period where people didn't really sort of invest in sort of going to the Europeans, whereas the Euro- whereas the riders from Belgium and Holland and Italy, have, you know, they have a very small national championship, say four rounds, and they're in February. So they are all searching to do the European championships. Whereas here in the UK, we have probably the healthiest um, championship because even even the even our riders in the UK are getting fairly good money and able to make a living. So, whereas, you know, in France and Holland and Italy, I don't see that they're, you know, they wouldn't make the money, say, like Tommy Surleys or um, Jake Nichols or Martin Barr or, or those, or Brad Anderson. You know, they they couldn't make a living doing their own national championship. So that says something for the British scene, but it it takes away from our youngsters, um, you know, wanting to do, you know, go to Europe. You know, say say riders like Taylor Hamill, probably if they were pushing the Europeans a lot more, then maybe they would have come a little bit further. Whereas by the time they get to knock on the door, they're too old for MX2. It's uh yeah, and it's difficult for a GP team to take, you know, to invest in a British uh, championship rider because if you're away twenty races a year, then you can't give a good service to a rider that's based in the UK. Mm. You you know you have people like Rob Hooper and that that can do a, a lot better job. Yeah, you know, and Lee Weber, you know, at cab screens and those sort of things. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's difficult, but yeah. it, it seems to be getting better for uh, you know s- some of the British youth. So, sort of moving on to well, I say more current times at the moment. Um, run through a little bit of how you got involved in running the GPs. Seems you've you've done a lot of you across the years. <laughs> yeah, so I've run eleven Grand Prix and two motocross nations. Um, yeah. And again, I'll, I'll work for you on every one of them. Yeah. So, so again, the plan was. Do, never, do I get a watch or something soon? A, a, you will do. Yeah, we'll, we'll arrange that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so go back to the GP. Well, you know, I never, you know, looked to do to run Grand Prix or had any thought or ambition to do that. It was the fact that for the British teams, the British Grand Prix is. It's a massive event, you know, 
for us, we used to bring 300 guests from Bike It or Yamaha to the British GP at Fox Hill, and it was fantastic. End of story. Didn't look mm-hmm. any further than that. Then, then um, the sort of GP became a bit volatile, you know, a couple of years with bad weather. Then uh, John Haller stopped. Then there was no GP. And then, then, then there was going to be the... So, so then, uh, you know, people start to lose interest. Then there was a GP of um, Isla White, which was fantastic. You know, mm-hmm. that which we thought, ah, oh, well, this is great. You know, we've got a new home. It's all going to start again. Yeah. So, that, so we had um, a lot of guests there and so did other British teams. But then that didn't – so then, uh, unfortunately, Rob Bradley, who ran the team, he, you know, it, it – it didn't work out. He stopped doing it. Then there was going to be no Grand Prix in 2005. So I, I looked, you know, I said, well, we need to try to resurrect it. This is, you know, mm-hmm. Britain's a joke regarding GPs. So I, I teamed up and I ran, um, brought the GP to Matchams, was successful, but it was too big for the area. And yeah. As it happened, Mark Chamberlain uh, ran at, Isla White, so we had two GPs that year. Mm-hmm. Then, um, in, sorry to interrupt, but interestingly, if you look at the biographies of riders like Stefan Everts, you will see when they say favourite tracks, they list Matchams Park. Mm. Well, I think what you know, I have a because I'm so involved, I like to make sure that everything is as good as we can make it, and obviously. Matchams as it was wasn't going to be the right venue, but with Johnny going in and doing the track, it it became the right venue. So, and, and it was new to it was new to them. So that's why that was a success. And you know, it was good close racing. The track was sort of great, but obviously, you know, we weren't able to go back to that track. Uh, because of environmental issues and that with Dorset Cancer, et cetera. So, um, yeah, then, then that moved me on to go into a new event, you know, looking for a new venue, which was going to be, uh, yeah, it was going to be, um, take the GP back down to, um, Farley Castle. So we had yeah. meetings and that's what was going to happen. But that, and we also got awarded the Nations for 2006. So then we went to ONA and was at the Nations, and I was like, oh, my God, this is so big. Like, you know, because 2004, I think we was at Zolder, and it was really small and not so many fans. And then ONA sort of broke the mold going back to big big um, crowds. So we went, we went to ONA, and um, everything was all logoed up, you know, for the dates, uh, I think it was 23rd and 24th of September, 2006, uh, 2006, Farley Castle, you know, we had promotion girls going around and all sorts. Anyway, then it, uh, then I went back to Farley and I thought, you know what, if we run the nations here, we will lose Farley forever. And then I'll be like the bad guy. <laughs> so, so we, we had to sort of, you know, pull out of that and say, look, you know, it's just not, it's not good for Farley. It, it's just going to ruin it for other people that use it. And, and, 
you know, that wasn't our aim. Our aim was to sort of keep the GP alive. And then, as I say, luckily we got awarded the nations. So, yeah, I, I then went searching for ground and I looked uh, at Winchester because I come from Winchester. I, I looked around and looked at the the big bowl area where they have uh, Boomtown Festival and I thought that would be perfect. So I went and met the farmer and he said, well, you can't really do it there, but I have another field. And, yeah, that was the field and I brought Johnny along and, yeah, the, then we built the track and... Um, you know, the GP was fantastic. We had fun fair, we had bumper cars and everything. And, uh, you know, Caroli and all those guys were at the fun fair and it was fantastic. Then we run the nations and that was just, well, that was just off the limits. There was so many people there was something like 60,000. Did that take you by surprise, the scale of attendance and everything there, Steve? Because yeah, I mean, no, no, one, no could, one was expecting that crowd, really, were they? No, I mean, there were 60,000 people. They were turning people away. Gen- genuine 60,000, not not a, a made-up uh, no, figure. I mean, that was genuine. It was absolutely, you know, phenomenal. It, it, you know, it, it went so successful and then it became like – yeah, disaster, you know, because it was I, I remember that morning, uh, race day morning on the Sunday, um, Paul and I started um, the, started the proceedings off and we were sort of bigging it up. So, and, and I remember, um, I think it was Martin from Bike It came yeah. across saying, calm it down, lads, calm it down. Everyone's trying to push the fences down because they think this is... Yeah, yeah. I remember yeah, I mean that was. Um, I, I remember there was like twenty thousand pounds worth of advertising um, hoardings around the track, you know, that Bike It had, had done, and and looked lovely. And if you look at all the photos on Saturday, they're all there. And then on Saturday night, wow! I mean, it was just chaos. I mean, people were going down in wheelie bins. They pulled all the um, all the fencing down, and there was, I think, at the end of the there was 10 kilometers of fencing that was damaged. I think we had to get the riot police in. There were 70 riot police and, and it was just everyone having a good time. I mean, I had to get on stage and they were playing, I predict a riot and I had to like get on and plead with the people to stop it. But for everyone, it's like a memory of, let's say, I don't know, what do they say of Glastonbury or it was an all time great, Never to be repeated, you know. I don't think it will ever. It was just like the perfect storm with um, Everts um, retiring, with Carmichael there, with I know he didn't eventually ride, but with Bubba Stewart, mm-hmm. and it was just um, Villapo. It was just unreal, and that was an I was there moment. And it was, you know, it was it was one of them. You had to be there to see it, and oh my god, that that was that was something else. So. Well, then actually, we we didn't run a Grand Prix for five years, and you know that's when sort of Donington took over for a uh, no, Gareth. Mallory. Yeah, Mallory. Gareth, run, uh, Gareth ran a couple of ones at um, Mallory, and then Donington ran one. And again, then we were back into turmoil. There was no Grand Prix. It got you know there was. So then it got awarded to America and the ACU come to me and said, Oh, okay. We need, you know, we need to get a British Grand Prix again, you know, and, and we're going to, 
we're going to do it, you know, as the ACU, we're going to run it. We, we, we want to buy, this was Jim Parker. He was chairman and we're going to run it. You know, would you help us? Could we run it at Matley? I said, look, I'll give you all the help you want. I'll tell you all what you need. And, you know, and that was fine. And then got to, I don't know, August, you know, it already been announced, got to August and Jim Parker sort of rang, rang up uh, Giuseppe and said, uh, actually, um, yeah, the committee said we, we can't go ahead with it. So Giuseppe came to me and said, look, what do you think, Steve? Can you, uh, can you help us out? Can you, can you run it? You know, we'll have a partnership with you. And I'm like, Phew. well, I guess so. I mean, yeah, it'd be brilliant to sort of run again. And yeah, and that was 2011. So we've run 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. So, so, um, yeah, that, that, that was how it got into it. And, um, yeah, we haven't, yeah. And I don't know how to say no now. So that's, that's, uh, this is going to be my next question because obviously now we've got the 2020 Nations. Uh, is it Matley? Is that another one that you couldn't say no to? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean, basically, you know, with uh, the Nations, it was uh, Danielle rang me and said, Look, it's, it's looking a little bit dodgy with France. You know, they, they may not, they, they need to make a decision at the moment. You can only have sort of 5,000 people, you know, including the crowds, uh, including the public, the paddock and everything. And it's not very big at RNA. It, you know, it's be, be hard. So uh, at that point, they needed to make a decision whether, so whether to run or not. And they decided not to run. And yeah, then mm. I got the call of like, could you do it at Matterly? I'm like, well, I, yeah, I don't mind. I said, but he said, well, we need to announce the calendar tomorrow. I'm like, well, wow. <laughs> I'm like, you found out the day before. Eh? You found out the day before they put the calendar announcement. Yeah, announcement like, I said, well, okay, look, let me send you an email. And I said, like, you know, just make sure it says TBC because, you know, it's going to rate. I haven't got the permission from Pebble or anyone yet. You know, it's those things take time. And, and that's how it stands at the moment is that, you know, it, everyone wants it at Matley. I want it at Matley. And, but in this period of time at the moment, you know, it is up in the air, not, not in a bad way, but there's a lot of boxes that need ticking correctly. You know, it's so, you know, at the moment, the, you know, the government, uh, has handed over um, authority to the local authority, which is, say, Hampshire, and every event has to be risk assessed. So the easy option for any event, for any council, is to say no. Then there's no problem. Immediately you say yes, you know, you know there's going to be issues. So there's all these hoops that you have to run in and, yeah, you know, with every event now, but, but people are positive that they actually want things to happen. You know, the whole COVID stuff from the government is, you know, get back to normal, you know, get back out in the countryside. So we, you know, there's a few pilot schemes going on around with um, MSV and motorsport and all of that, that are looking positive with crowds. And you know, actually like 
you know, they haven't set limits on crowds or anything. You just have to risk assess everything out. So we're currently uh, working on all the different risk assessments and, and how to, you know, to give all the correct information to, to run the event. Sim- simple things like, okay, each ticket holder, say you buy five tickets. Well, normally you would buy five tickets online and you would have the holders name and address, but now you need to know everyone's name and address so that they can add that into their track and trace. So these are the, so we, we have to do an event management plan that has to go into the council 60 days beforehand. We have to have the agreement with the landowner. We have to have the agreement with the South Downs National Park. We have to have the COVID in. So it's all a, it's all a, a balancing time act and the yeah as you know the council and everything everyone the, yeah this is not their top priority their top priority is getting local businesses up together and helping them and and but they are they're encouraging with us you know i spoke with them today and you know so i'm very positive that it will happen um so whilst there's no you know, news at the moment and no advertising, no saying this, that and the other. It's it's purely because, you know, legal stuff has to be done first. You know, you just can't run and then, you know, I, I understand Cullum got shut down. So did, um, what was it? Uh, oh, yeah, Broxton, so did <laughs> You know, purely because they had too many people there and, and rules weren't followed. And, uh, and I think I've been done it I've been doing it long enough to know that you have to comply. And, um, you, you know, you would know that with the beat race and stuff like that. You know, when you're dealing at that level, you have to do things correctly. Um, and that's the motions we're going through. So I'm, I'm positive on the event and it would be fantastic for, you know, for everyone, it, you know, it'd be fantastic for the fans and, you know, the manufacturers and, and also for the teams but we, mm-hmm. you know, we know obviously the Americans are not coming and some of the others, which, you know, is a shame, but it's yeah. happened before. It's happened before. And, you know, I, I think if we look at, you know, just the the value of the, you know, the feel good factor at a, you know, at the nations or at a GP, it, it's all about you know, suddenly the sponsors are going to start seeing their product out there. Suddenly they're going to see adverts. So what I fear at the moment is if there's no championships is if I look at say smaller teams, you know, smaller sponsors that may go to one Grand Prix or maybe one British championship um, event a year and they think, oh, that was good fun. Yeah. So when Joey comes a month later and says, oh, will you sponsor me again next year? They go, you know what? I enjoyed that the other week at that race. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll give you. I'll continue to give you a thousand, two thousand pounds. But if if they don't see any action, or if there's nothing to be involved, then when they come knocking on the door in, you know, February or whatever, or Jan or December, and say, "Hi, you know." I know we didn't race this year, but would you be able to do anything next year? They'd be like, "Well, you know what." I haven't really missed it. And, you know, so I'm, I think I'll give it a miss this year. And, we're, you know, I wish you the best of luck. And I think 
we just need to have something out there so that everybody has a little lifeline yeah. to go by. Because actually the motorcycle industry in this shutdown has done well. You know, there's yeah, yeah. record reports of bike sales, of spare parts, but they're not the people that are that are putting out the money. It's it's your your plumber or your electrician or whatever or your builder helping out you know, Joey down the road that's doing his first British Championship series and and they're the ones that are like, wow, I didn't miss this. And I, I've seen this with, you know, talking to people that do shows and, you know, they're like, you know what, I spent 30 grand on shows last year and mm, really impacted us. So maybe I'll just do a bit of online advertising and give the shows a miss for a couple of years. Well, that then has a knock-on effect for the shows and then for the people going to the shows. And if if you're sort of silent and out of the way, then I, I fear that we're going to lose our important small sponsors that help at all the different, you know, levels. And um, I say you only need one good meeting and then you've got a good feel-good feel factor. And I think that's what is important to sort of the, the races in, in the UK and around Europe and yeah. also for Grand Prix. You know, everyone needs something to look forward to. I don't think people are looking forward. I don't think people are looking at championships as a real, real championship. They're just looking at, I need to get back racing. I need to, um, you know. I, I think if, if it did run, people are so starved of watching racing, they would flock there and you'll get a massive crowd. Yeah, hopefully. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, um, as long as they're all social distance, that's okay. But, I mean, with Matterley, the reason they spoke, Matterley could take 140,000 people. No, normally you work on, let's say, four people per square meter. That's like an average at an event. And at concerts, it can go up to five people per square meter. Well, you know, we're forever trying to enclose Matley and make it look smaller so it looks crowded because actually when 60,000 were in it, it looked nice. And and we, but if we took all the food wagons and, and all the trade and put them in a separate area, it means that we could really social distance. It means we can, um, we can then, you know, contain sort of food areas and um, trade areas so that, you know, there's control going into them and going out of them. And, and and I think, you know, motocrossers, they sort of tend to have little packs. You know, if you look at overhead drone pictures, they're in little sort of pockets anyway. And it's not like at Matley, you don't have to be on the fence. Actually, if you're further back, you actually can see the whole track a lot better and you get a lot more perspective. So people do tend to go on the banks and normally we uh you know we have a couple of loops that are sort of closed that are normally just so that the crowd looks you know more condensed than it really is because if you put ten thousand people in Matley at a GP it looks empty. But if you put five thousand at Matchams it looks completely rammed full. So that's the reason Matley is sort of the perfect choice uh, to to go to. And uh, as I say, at this moment, I'm confident. 
you know. So what, put it on a percentage wise, Steve. What's, what's your gut feeling? 80 20 in favour. <laughs> if you'd asked me two weeks ago, I would have said 50 50. So that's encouraging. Yeah, no, I mean, everything is going on in the, in the background, you know, the huge amount of work going on in the background. Um, you know, the actual build of the, the event, like I say, could happen in, you could do it in a week. It's, you know, you've seen what, what Ustream come in and they build their village. Everyone has got their job, you know, the tent builders, the toilet deliverers, the, and, you know, but every single one of them has to have, you know, a risk assessment and all this COVID. And so mm. it, things are just going to be different. different. I, don't, I don't think, I don't think massively because, you know, it's such a, a wide open space, you know, people come, they, they park, you know, they get their ticket in the car, they park up, they walk to the event and then they watch the event. It's not like in a theme park where everyone is touching um, a bump, uh, you know, a theme park ride, or everyone's going on a seesaw, or everyone's going on a um, touching a, a hand railing. We we haven't got that flow of people keep touching the same thing. They come to the, you know, they come to the race generally in a camper. They camp up in their own little tribes. They have their own food. They have their own cleaning, etc. They walk into the race and they watch from their spot. They either go up to the trade or the food if they want to, and they go back to the campers. So we have, you know, we have a lot of information of the pattern of, you know, of how people are. And so it's not like we have to sort of make up all these things to the council and say, oh, yeah, definitely they will do this and definitely they will do that. And I think the public at this stage, five months down the road, they're, social distancing and all these sort of things is second nature. It's it's not like you're going into an event and suddenly it's like, you know, you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do that. They in, in, in everyone's social distancing now, uh, I don't think anyone goes by the rules. They go by their own feel. If you go into a petrol station and you see someone walking towards you, you sort of stand to the side. You don't, you don't like brush by them. You, you naturally have been nurtured to do that over these last five months. And I think, I think that's, that's the sort of, you know, that combined with a huge outdoor space. I don't think there's any, any, um, you know, real problem. And it's not like, yeah. So I don't, I don't think we need to convince a lot of people in, in that it's possible to run with social distancing. And that's if, you know, in, you know, who knows in eight weeks' time what the rules and regulations are, um, but I, I don't physically see it as a as a problem. You know, mm-hmm. maybe maybe they can't go into the pits. You know, maybe it's got to be treated as um, a separate, let's say, yeah. m- let's say team side and public side, and and all, you know, all of the the council and the government are interested in is the public side of things because, mm-hmm. you know, us as MX events and the teams have a duty of care to make sure that each, you know, each van has their own sort of little bubble and they, they take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, 
you're not sort of everyone's not putting themselves at risk anyway because they don't want to um, catch it anyway. Yeah. So it's, but yeah, ultimately, um, like with any event now, you're dealing with with the government and with the councils, whose option, whose easy and quickest option is to say no. Yeah. So. So, so you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. Eighty, it's gone from fifty-fifty to eighty-twenty. So it's good. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and then maybe tomorrow it's ninety. No, I mean, so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm positive on on it. You know, I don't, I don't think I'm, I don't think we have a, you know, a, a bad program in place. You know, we have a very good program in place because, like I say, it's it's not rocket science to go from your car to an, to inside the venue and hold up your hand with a, a wristband. You know, you know, instead of having one queue of, you know, a thousand people, you have five queues of 200 people, a hundred meters long, and you bring them in in a lot bigger space. And it's just all about numbers and numbers are when you've got an open area like Matley, those numbers are easy to sort of, work into it you know with a stadium like i don't know wembley or whatever there's only x amount of exit you can't put in a a 20 meter gap you know to get people in you you have mm. what you have and um luckily at matchley we have sort of multiple entries multiple road entries and yeah. you know you could have five car parks all entering uh, two or three thousand people in an hour and it's the job done so and I will we'll keep I've not got my fingers crossed it's just work you know that we have to do to satisfy you know all the correct people that we could do it and not put public at risk and uh you know and trust that the people coming to the race aren't you know have their own um agenda that they're not ill that they haven't got temperatures that they mm-hmm that they know how to social distance and you know you're never gonna you're never gonna sort of you know make it foolproof but yeah you you need to eliminate and and at the end of the day this this would give a lot of local businesses you know for toilets and showers and defensing it would all give that some of those have only the only job they did was matley in march because their whole festival season has gone yeah yeah of course and it's important that that whole industry which is you know the event industry you know also gets itself on the on its feet the same as shops and you know it's difficult for pubs and everywhere that are experiencing sort of you know just opening their, their gardens to punters and mm-hmm. yeah it's difficult you know so but, moving on. slightly into next year is there anything that you have got uh, going on with the team for next year or is it generally sort of rolling over from this year? Um, anything different? Yeah, so we're excited that Kawasaki have brought out a new new bike, new electric start and, you know, I, th- I think it's a really good base. So we're excited, you know, that, that we've got that and that's going to help us in our sort of quest to, you know, to sort of beat KTM and those guys. And, um, yeah, we're currently sort of on the search for maybe adding another rider to, to you know, to our team. Um, you know, 
some of our, you know, sponsorships increase for next year. And, um, you know, it's looking like we'll have also have bike it back, bike it, you know, back on, oh, um, you know, on the team because, you know, they, they've, they've done well. And again, you know, bike it as a sponsor have been with me 25 years and, you know, it's, you get you you know when you've done those amount of years you get used to sort of uh you know different things that happen and that's you've got to look at the long term of things and not just sort of year by year so we're we're yeah we're um we're looking positive for next year it's um yeah we're we're uh yeah we're happy going into next year and i think the only thing is we don't you know we obviously don't know again how this carries on into next year it could be all going again and we all be back on lockdown but who knows well that's it i mean and you say that this year is pretty much going to run into next year isn't it race wise absolutely i mean that's that's um you know that's one of the things you know we're running into sort of november december which is the off season and then suddenly it goes into yeah development and all that it's it's going to be difficult and it's going to be quite strategic to how you plan um you know for the for next year because you know you don't get the new bikes until shortly and then you know obviously funding wise you know a lot of sponsors haven't sort of paid this year because you know we haven't raced and they need to keep their budget so you think right okay so i mean that's one of the things that we've been doing you know a lot of sponsors um, you know, weren't able to sort of pay, uh, you know, because they need to save their own, um, you know, businesses, you know, going into next year. So that that's been going on. So we, we diversified into doing a lot of sort of private work for local sort of riders and stuff like that. And that's been, you know, that's been sort of keeping things going and Kawasaki, you know, they've been great. They, they pay all the riders anyway and uh, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, we're, we're going in probably a lot healthier than normal. Um, so that's, you know, that's good. And then if, if we have a, you know, if we get the nations and that's good, then that'll be, you know, that'd be really good. But I think it will be uh, a great event if, you know, if it does go ahead, because yeah, like you say, people have been starved of, you know, that and, yeah, all the, all the people that doubted me running in March saying it was stupid and that, you know, my theory is that you just have to take an opportunity that you're given. And that was the only choice I had and you've got to be happy with it. And then if you don't, if it doesn't happen, then you can't be sad. And yeah, as it turned out, it, it was a good decision. Although, um, it, you know, you can, you can run in, you know, look at the rain and that we've had recently, compared to the month before when we had all that sunshine. So so you could have been cancelling in June because of rain or running March or May and it'd been absolute a dream. So you just never know. You just gotta be happy with what you're sort of given and ultimately the calendar has to balance out for all the other teams of, of the way they travel and stuff. You should definitely buy a lottery ticket, Steve, because you you do get lucky with the weather. <laughs> it always works out for you. You should buy a lottery ticket. You really should. Well, I mean, uh, you know, a bit of rain has never hurt anyone. I think I think we have to take, um, you know, 
sort of a bit of credit in that the the site, although you know it gets muddy, the the, the track always rides well. You know, no matter mm-hmm. what you ch- chuck at it, you know the way it was designed for drainage and for water running off. You know, the first priority was how do you run in UK and not cancel it because you know obviously we remember the the races in Fox Hill and they got cancelled because the pits were a swamp and stuff like that. And then, you know, even Hawkstone, you know, at the British Championship, it got cancelled because the track washed away. That's right. So, I remember so, that. Yeah. So, so it's number one priority is the venue of how, how, how to ensure that, you know, no matter what's thrown at it, it pretty much can't, you know, doesn't get cancelled because you can deal with all the other abnormalities mm-hmm. and um but you but if you haven't got a track to race on then you don't have an event it doesn't matter how good your car parking in or or whether you're bussing people in from town or whatever if you haven't got a race able to happen then you know it's game over and at that stage you've already spent a lot of money and you're it'll probably be game over for you know the as an organiser. Well, we had four seasons in a day on the Saturday this year, didn't we? Absolutely, yeah. I mean... Had uh, the whole lot. Yeah, and I mean, you know, with the Skybox, it's like, that was unreal. I mean, I I truly believe that we had a mini cyclone or something, a little mini tornado, because we, you know, nothing was consistent, because right next to where the, you know, the paddock bridge went down, um, was the Covo bar, which had big umbrellas on that, and that didn't move. And then two easy ups went down when they were connected to two others, and the pit lane stayed up, and the skybox went down. And you know, it's always easy to lay blame and stuff like that. But you know, with, with the weather and that, it's you know, you can only do so much. I mean, the weather is the most powerful thing you know it takes houses down it turns towns into rivers it yeah you can only do what you can do to try to be safe and uh yeah that's um that's one of the battles of an an event or anything that runs outside whether it's yeah it, it doesn't matter what you you know you've only got to look at all the flooding you say why why should flooding happen you know but you can only do so many defenses for towns and everything and yeah you'll never you'll never beat the weather it's <laughs> too powerful this is it um i reckon then roger that'll probably round up episode 17 what do you reckon well, well, 17 oh. 18 19 20 and 21 <laughs> 22, <laughs> 23. this has been one of the longest shows we've done but i have to say probably one of the most interesting as well i knew it was going to be a good one so uh, and it's proved that so thank you steve it's uh, been enlightening yeah no worries i'm never one to hide things <laughs> well maybe we can get you back on um probably we'll catch up at the nations and, and maybe get you on another podcast yep yep so uh that'll be no problem Definitely. well that rounds up episode 17 of the live motocross podcast uh, make sure you subscribe to us on uh itunes acast spotify wherever you listen to make sure you don't miss an episode make sure you tune on.